Okay, so if you've been paying attention, right, we've been working our way through Isaiah. We're preaching our way through the book of Isaiah. And so, um, you know, we've, we've been talking in this last section. Last time I preached, if you were here, I preached a sermon about the judgment of the nations, the judgment of Babylon specifically, a nice uplifting, light, encouraging text. It was about encouragement, but it was one of those ones you read it and you're like, wait, I'm supposed to be encouraged by this? Wait. So we, we had that a few weeks ago. And what happens in chapter 13 really is, you know, all the chapters that come between what we're doing today, which is Isaiah 19, is really the story of God judging these nations and working his way through judgment, basically saying, if you're going to live in these ways, you're going to reap what you sow unless something happens unless something takes place. So what we've seen is, is basically Israel being encouraged that those who are, who are living evil ways are being dealt with. And we should, by the way, be encouraged that when we see justice being done, a part of us should say, amen. Amen that that happened, right? This is why the revenge movie keeps being made every single day year, right? The, the Taken. They could make 58 versions of the movie Taken and they would sell because people are like, oh, the bad guys who did really bad things, this guy came and like took care of the bad guys and gave them what they deserve. We love that film, right? We love it because there's a part of us that's longing and, and wanting that justice to happen. And so what's happening in, in uh, Judah is that they're reading the, what we've read and they're going, yeah, these guys who have been, you know, these, these nations who have been evil against us, Praise God. God is getting those who are doing bad things. But this week, um, we're setting the stage a little differently. Last week, Isaac kind of had this story. If you were here last week, Isaac told the story of a Sasquatch or a Yeti, right? You're hiking up Floyd, Buffalo Mountain, and and a Yeti comes out and is like, okay, what do we do when we have this big, scary, terrible difficulty in front of us. And I want to change the narrative this week to, to address and kind of make it more personal. So let me set a stage for us. Okay, I want you to envision your neighborhood or your dorm room or your office. And I want you to envision someone who lives in your neighborhood who maybe is at least slightly different from you. And if you're like me, I have a whole range of folks who are different from me in all kinds of ways. And I I want us to wrestle through how do we think about those who are different from ourselves? So the number one thing that comes to mind, there's a lot of different things that we could fill in here, but in this season, I think about my front yard. When I sit on my front porch, literally, I can look out and there are different political signs in the yards. Some of those signs are not the candidate that you are voting for. So how do we orient ourselves to our neighbors who are on a whole spectrum of of all sorts of things, whether it's political, whether it's socioeconomic, right? We have wealthier neighbors than us and we have poorer neighbors than us. How do we relate to our neighbors and how do we understand them? Again, I want to move away from Isaac's illustration because that was helpful for last week. But this week, now we're dealing with these people, people who are other than us, different from us, people who we often will put the label, those people, right? Because they're, they're different from us. So I want us to wrestle through this idea because we're going to be in Isaiah 19. Flip to Isaiah 19 with me. Isaiah 19, we're only going to do about nine verses. And I'm going to read because what we're going to see here is this is this really the sermon is about Israel's relationship with Egypt. Israel's relationship with Egypt. And so here's Egypt, just to set the stage a little bit. I'm going to pray here in a second, but to set the stage a little bit. This is, is one of Israel's most ancient enemies. 
right? They, 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 were, they were their oppressors. They, they were their slaveholders. When they were in the land of Egypt, 400 years, they were in oppression in Egypt. So Egypt is one of the big bad guys. You know, Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria are kind of the big bad guys in most of the history of Israel. And so we're going to read a section here about Egypt, and I want you to notice what we get through here. This is Isaiah 19. And actually, before I do that, I'm, I'm getting excited to read the text. Let me pray for us. Because here's the thing, a lot of this will be stuff that we, we understand, but we really wrestle to practice. And, and listen, we have a date coming up, right? November the 3rd, which is going to be a very weird time for many of us. And we're going to have to wrestle through some things and how we relate to those who are not like us and who are, are very different in a lot of different ways. So let's, let me pray that the Lord will work on us this morning as we spend time in his word and that we actually walk out of here with something affected and changed in us. Join me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, to be really honest, Lord, we, we don't like those who are not like us. It's uncomfortable. It is difficult to say the least to, to understand how it is we relate to those who do things that we really wrestle with and struggle with. Some of those things being sin even. So Lord, we need your help to understand this morning, to understand your word, to be affected by your word, as you always do, by your power, by your spirit, by your word, work on your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at Isaiah 19, and again, he's been in a section of oracles about Isaiah, or about um, the nations, and we get here to this statement here in Uh, The first part of this chapter is an oracle against Egypt, and then we have verse 16 of chapter 19 of Isaiah. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them, and the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of those will be called the city of destruction, or another rendering has the city of the sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come to Egypt, and Egypt to Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This is the word of the Lord this morning. So, 
we're getting this portrait of this nation of Egypt and kind of we see a progression happen, right? At the very beginning of the, pres- uh, the passage, you see the judgment happening against Egypt where the Lord is bringing his, his hand against the nation for their sin and for their lack of faithfulness. So he's judging them, but then things shift. As the passage moves on, there's a transition that's happening where they're being judged at the beginning. And then as it goes along, they now then get basically welcomed and invited in. So, so as, as, uh, as Israel is relating to Egypt, look at, the, look at verse 22. This kind of summarizes kind of the transition that happens. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. So here's what's happening. You have this, this nation of Israel. You have, you have Judah, really, is, is, is who it is historically at this moment. You have Judah as a nation, and you have all these other nations around them. You've got the northern kingdom that's against them. You've got Syria that's against them. You've got Assyria that's against them. You've got Egypt. You've got Phil- the Philistines, the Babylonians. There's all of these neighbors to Israel that stand right outside this little country of Judah. And they are these neighbors that have a agenda against Israel. And yet here is Israel, this little thing, this little country that stands and they realize they are not the biggest and they are not the baddest. They see their pecking order in the grand scheme of the national power play. And so now they have to wrestle through as we have to wrestle through. How do we relate to our neighbors how do we think about them? How do, we, how do we look out our window and even we see and we hear things in our neighborhood? I know people hear what goes on in my house. Because my house is loud. My house is loud all the time. Like I see my neighbors, my first words to them usually is, I'm sorry. We have a lot of noise. So like, you know, I know when my windows are down, this is no joke. When my windows are down, I've heard some things. Right? And you're like, man, what's going on over there? Poke your head out. Huh? The police are over there today. You know? We know some things about our neighbors. We know some things about our coworkers. It's not just a neutral picture. We look out the window, and here's my question. How do we relate to our neighbors? How are we to think about them? So here's our temptation. Here are three temptations in how we can inappropriately respond to our neighbors. These are three temptations that we have which parallel what the temptations are with Israel. The first temptation with our neighbors is to fear them. I know that sounds like a weird one, to fear them. So you got Israel who's looking out at Egypt and is either, so the first temptation is that they would be afraid of them, that they're a threat to their, what, comfort, happiness. And I don't know about you, but this, 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 is, this, is, this is part of living in a neighborhood. There are certain neighbors that you know, and again, you, <laughs> you live in your neighborhood, so you know what I'm talking about. And there's, there, there can be a fear there where you're going like, oh man, I'm not sure I want to relate to those people, right? Maybe they're the house that you hear things coming through your window. They're the ones that the police shows up. So the first negative thing, the first, uh, what's the word I'm using? Temptation. The first temptation is to fear them. That's the first one, okay? So I'm going to give a little list and we'll unpack a little bit of these. So the first one's to fear. The second is to use, to use. That's going to sound like a weird one, to use them. So here's, again, these are three temptations of ways we should not relate to our neighbors and yet are often doing this. So the first one is to fear, where basically we just go, man, I, they freak me out. Two, to use them. And here's what I mean. Your neighbors often have something that you need or want. Sometimes it's comfort. 
Sometimes it's property value, right? So let's say you look out your, your, your side window, hypothetically, and you look out there and there's, oh, I don't know, a couple of rusty cars in the yard. And maybe some like, you know, old burned out furniture and maybe some like, you know, stuff that you know, dilapidated falling off the side of the house. You know, some of you are going, that's why I have an HOA, a homeowners association. We don't have an HOA, okay? So here's the thing. So part of us goes, okay, let me get close to this person so that way I can kind of, you know, get them to maybe remove a couple of those cars. Hey, man, oh, great to see you. Oh, how's it going today? Oh, yeah. Hey, you know what? I saw this crazy ad the other day. This thing called a junkyard. Ha! Huh. You know, these cars, they have places for these things. Not your yard. I mean, do I say that out loud? Yeah, well, you know, like, so sometimes the way we want to use them is to get them to do what we want to do so we can benefit somehow from our relationship. They become something to leverage. They become someone who we can uh, maybe just have an enjoyable passing conversation so we can just get a little bit of comfort from that. They become someone to use, not someone to love. So these are our three temptations. The first is to fear. The second is to use them. Or think about the office, right? So your neighbor who shares the cubicle over from you, he has sway with the boss. He's your manager. He's your supervisor. She's your supervisor. And now you are relating and buying that gift card from Starbucks and you know, noting that thing that they enjoy because they benefit you. So now they become someone to leverage for your own gain. They become someone that you can use in order to get more clout in your social circle, more clout in your workspace, a higher salary. That If you know you say the right things, treat them in the right ways, you get a certain result from them that you can leverage where you stand to gain and stand to be in a better position, right? So the three temptations, first is to fear, second is to use, and this third one's an interesting one, to dismiss, to dismiss. Usually this is an end result of trying the first two and that not, not really working. Um, and then you just get to a place where you're like, I just don't even see them. I don't even notice. I walk into my office and there's that guy who has the weird stuff on his desk and says weird things. He doesn't benefit me or I've tried to have it benefit me. It doesn't work. And so I just, I don't even notice anymore. You're like, oh, did you notice Bob's, you know, candle? Nope. Who's Bob? I don't even see him anymore. Right? And we have certain neighbors in our neighborhood that we learn to kind of just avoid. And here's the thing. So the, the fear or the temptation there is to say to dismiss. But here's the thing. When we're doing that, when we basically relegate someone to the land of like, I don't even notice them anymore. Here's what we're, what we're really doing is we're hating that person. We're saying, look, you're so despicable to me that I don't even notice you anymore. You're not, you don't even register as like a human being anymore. And here, here's my question, church, as we, are, as we are wrestling through this, and as we are going toward this political season of, you know, we're in this political season, going toward the election, I think nowhere is this more prevalent than when we see people who are wearing the shirt, posting the sign of people who are not in the camp that we are in. They are those people. How could they vote for that guy? How are we to think about our neighbors? Right? And sometimes the beef you have with these people is legit beef. Just like Israel had with Assyria. Just like Israel had with Egypt. A lot of their neighbors, they're doing some stuff that you don't agree with. And yet, how are we to relate to them? How are we to understand our relationship? It is a tricky thing to work through. And here, here's the, there, so we have three temptations that we've been in, but here's, here's a couple responses to that. One lie, one action, and one certainty. One lie, one action, and one certainty. Here, here, is the, here is the lie. This is the lie, by the way. 
The lie is, is that we as the people of God have no power. We as the people of God have no power. We feel like we don't have any sway in the culture. We feel like we don't have any say at the office. We feel like nobody cares what we have to say. We are being told you have no power. Therefore, you need to operate in one of these temptations in order to try and leverage that to try and get something for yourself. You have to fight and grasp for that. So this is what we have with Israel. Israel and, and you know, Judah, who we're talking about specifically, Judah is in a place where they're saying, look, we're this small country. We don't have a lot of tanks. We don't have a lot of chariots. What are our options? Well, we can either uh, kind, of, kind of avoid those guys, just kind of dodge them because we're afraid of them. We can try and kind of like partner up with them, or we can just kind of like try and just pretend that they're not there because it's so scary that they're around. We just dis- dismiss them and, and just don't even think about it at all. And so you have Israel who's in this position where how do they think about their neighbors and why they go into relationship with these people, right? How are we to think about how we relate to our neighbors? And here's my question. You're walking down the street and here comes one of those neighbors and he's decked out, right? He's got the logo on the hat of the guy that you're not voting for. He's got the logo on the shirt of the guy that you're not voting for. He's got the, you know, the uh, get 10 for a dollar bracelet that you can buy, right, on Amazon. It's got the mask that has that candidate on there. It's got the shoelaces, right? I mean, you, if you, all the swag is out there. You get anything you want. So that guy who's voting for the guy you're not voting for is walking down the street. What goes on in you? I know it goes on in me. It's like a spiritual eye roll, right? I mean, you can't actually do an eye roll because all they can see these days is your eyes. So they, they notice that. So, right? So you're going, like, oh, brother. You know, like this guy's really vested here. Man, we, we have to wrestle, church. How do we relate to our neighbors? What, what, what is being elicited in you when you think about that? And we have these comments coming out from certain pastors saying things like, you can't be a Christian and vote Democrat. Literal quote. What what world are we in, church? Where is our allegiance? Where is our hope? Where is our heart? How do we think about our neighbors and the way that we choose to operate and what that says to them? So, the lie is you have no power. Because often we feel powerless, and yet you and I just sat in here and watched a man who celebrated the truth that Jesus Christ raised him from the dead. Stephen's problem was not that he he needed to be a good guy, right? Or that he needed to be able to do more push-ups, or he needed to be able to say things nicer. He testified that he was far from God. He needed to be raised from the dead. And yet we are a people who operate in this country as if we do not have power and we do not have position and we have to navigate and waffle and dodge the, the, the social pressures of this world and the power structures that are out there. We play no such games, church. If we believe upon Jesus Christ, we are by definition a people that could not have more power. 
We are, when we believe in Christ, Romans 8, not, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? Neither, neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor, nor powers, or principalities, nothing else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, because you are more than conquerors. You're not merely a conqueror, you're more than a conqueror. Your life has been bound up indestructibly in the person of Jesus and nothing can take that from you. And yet we are operating in a lot of these temptations because we were afraid of what we could lose or miss or suffer depending on how we connect or don't connect or agree or don't agree with said political position. And how, how are we relating to those who are not like us. What is our hope for them? So we have these three temptations. We have that one lie that we don't have power. Man, we are a people of power. You have the powerful one in you if you believe upon Christ. So we have nothing to lose and nothing to fear, which means we have a boldness and a way in which we can operate and vote and speak and move that no one else in all creation has other than those who believe upon Jesus. You have an unwavering way in which you can move and operate. So the one lies you have no power and we know that we have power. The one action, here is the one action. This is the one thing that we have. Here is what we are to do. What is Israel, as they're reading this text, what are they supposed to do as they read Isaiah 19? Here it is. Use your position of power. So hear that. You have a position of power. You have a position of privilege, right? We've had all the discussion lately about white privilege, right? Here's the thing. If you believe upon Jesus, you've got eternal Holy Spirit privilege. You've got the gift, the gift of life eternal, the gift of the Spirit of God. You have more eternal welfare than you could ever dream or imagine. Hear me, church. We are a people who have a position of power and privilege. And how do we use that position? So one action, use your position of power to draw all nations to Yahweh. Right? Not to get your political candidate to win. Not to win the political argument. Listen, someone's going to get elected here in the next few weeks and th that person's term is going to be four years or maybe eight. And then, and then time is going to roll on and the kingship of Christ will roll on. And those people who voted other than you have eternal souls that need to be redeemed, that God sent his son to come and rescue them. And you have a position of power that God has given you. How are we leveraging our positions of power in the spirit of God, in the gospel of Christ, in order to bring the light of the gospel to the nations? And I don't just mean getting on boats, right? I don't just mean hopping in an airplane with Brian B. Hall. Hear me, hop on airplanes with Brian B. Hall. 
Go overseas. Share the gospel. We need to do that. People have read this text. They've studied Isaiah and quit their jobs and moved to China because they wanted to proclaim the gospel of Christ. That is an exact application of what I'm saying. Absolutely. Because they say, I don't need a job. I don't need money. I can go and literally spill out my blood in martyrdom in China so that people can hear the gospel. And I have used my position of power for the sake of the eternal glory of Yahweh, our King. So hear me, go, get on boats. That's fine. Many of you will not do that. And that's okay too. Israel didn't need to leave Israel. You know, Judah didn't have to get out of the kingdom of Judah to be a light unto the nations. Most of us will be here. We will stay in our jobs. We will stay in our neighborhoods. And God is saying, I put you there in this position so that you would be a light to the nations. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 52, literally a light to the nations. This is who God's people have always been intended to be. And the way in which we relate to our neighbors is the primary outpouring of this powerful light to the nations, not in fear, not using, not dismissing, but to go, I can overcome the things about what you do that I disagree with so that you can see the glory of the kingdom. So you're a white supremacist, right? That's a thing. Talk about that, right? White power that's coming, whatever. Okay. So let's say you, that's like your, your, your guy. That's the guy that you envision walking down the street, seeing this guy and going like, nope, uh-uh. Do we believe that God redeems white supremacists? He does, doesn't he? Just like he redeemed pornographers, just like he redeemed lusters, just like he redeemed liars, just like he redeemed rebellious to parents and all the other things we find in the scriptures. Listen, there's not a category that you're going to come up with. Well, they're an Antifa, Okay. They're in the KKK. Okay. Do they bear the image of an eternal God? They do. The narrative of our time is that there are people who go to a place that ceased to be redeemable. And we as the church need to categorically reject those categories. There is not a guy that I'm going to meet, any guy. Whether he's a part of Antifa, KKK, whatever you want to say, there's no person on this world that I'm going to meet who the Holy Spirit of God cannot redeem. And so we need to be people who, who wrestle through this and whatever you vote and wherever you go and whatever you speak and whatever political commitments you have, they better not trump or triumph over our commitments to King Jesus and the redemption of all nations. And by redemption of all nations, I mean the, 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 the strange folks who live across your street, who are part of an other, they're different from you. Maybe they're poorer, maybe they're richer. Maybe they're more left, maybe they're more right. I don't care. God doesn't care what category you have them in. He has them in, yeah, those are the nations. And you know what they need? They need the gospel. And we need to be a people who instead of going like, oh, I, I hope God brings fire from heaven for those guys. God puts these passages in here so that when we read in that day, there will be a highway. Not just a teeny path, not just a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria will come to Egypt and Egypt into Assyria and Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And in that day, Israel will be the third. 
a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Do you, do you notice his possessional language there? These are his people that he is delighted to have in his midst. And there's going to be a highway, meaning, man, I am not just going to go with a couple buddies over to the Assyrian party. I'm taking all of y'all and we're going to go, we're going to need a pretty big road because when we roll up with those, uh, you know, those cro- uh, crock pots, right? We're going to need a lot of space because I'm rolling in there and I don't want to burn myself. So we're going to need a big road for the party we're going to have. So this isn't just going to be a couple folks. So are we orienting the way in which we speak about politics? the way in which we speak about these non-essential, non-eternal things, are we doing that in ways that our neighbor could say, I don't agree with you politically, but I'd love to worship with you. Man. Man, let us not have this be a season where we burn bridges because we were dogmatic about the wrong things. We, as the church, as a powerful, by definition, people, need to lead the way on this. Let us not buy into all the commotion. Because here's the deal. You're going to vote one way, and they're going to vote one way. But look, they need the gospel. Hear this, church. There are going to be people who literally only vote the way that they're voting so that they can go to their friends the next day and go, hey, I voted like you voted. Can we talk Jesus? And that's not an illegitimate motive. We need to be careful about how we talk about politics, church. Talk about politics. Have a position. That's fine. It can't eternally matter. I know that's tough for us. So, one lie is that we don't have power. The one action is that we use our position of power to draw all men to God. And then lastly, we have one certainty from this text. And it was said over, he said, he said it actually six times, but it started five paragraphs. In that day, Isaiah was looking out over the horizon and he was talking about a day that would be inaugurated when the suffering servant of Israel would come. And if Isaiah walked in these doors and he heard our gospel and heard that not only did the suffering servant come, but he died and he rose from the dead. He overcame death and has now sent the spirit of God in a Jeremiah 31 and an Ezekiel 36 kind of way that the new covenant Holy Spirit would be in us. If he saw that, he would sit there and go like, you guys have something I never had. Do you know what you have in Christ? I prayed and I pleaded and I preached for a lifetime. This is Isaiah's lifetime. These 66 books of Isaiah is his lifetime. And he would grab one of us and say, tell me, tell me about this Jesus. He did what? And it's all written in a, I can read about it. What? You're kidding. And you know what he'd do? He'd want to get up and he'd want to steal the mic. Like, Brett, shut it. Give me the mic. Do you people know what you have? The Messiah has come. Life indestructible has come. And we are squabbling over rusted cars and political signs. 
where the nations are at our, our very doorsteps and we can bring the gospel of Christ to them. The suffering servant has arrived. He suffered. He reigns. He overcame the suffering and now he sits on a throne. Isaiah would, he would lose his mind in excitement. You mean you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you? What? What? No way. Explain this to me. I mean, Isaiah would be beside himself with excitement. And you and I walk in here. Well. Hmm. I hope we make it past election day. It's going to be hard. We might not be able to count all the votes. That means America's going straight to hell. You know? Right? Go cast your vote, church. That's fine. But the eternal ripples, there will be none. It's a blip. It's a mere grain of sand. But you know it's eternal and glorious and marvelous that cannot be stopped and cannot be destroyed is the soul of your neighbor. Man, if we would care a tenth in our passion as the church about the lost souls that live within eyeshot of our houses. Church, let's, let's, let's care about our neighbors. Let's lay down and love for their sake. Man, let's be a people united around the eternal life offered by the Son of God. What an opportunity we have. Let's wake up on November 4th or 5th or 6th or 7th or 8th or 20th, whatever it is to tally all the votes and just be like, a, you know, my eternity has not changed, not a blip. Jesus, the king of my country, has never stopped sitting on the throne since he rose from the dead. And he's going to do his work whether it's in the success of America or the demise of it, Jesus will be glorified and all nations will be drawn to him. Philippians 2, there's coming a day, this is our certainty, there's coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And some will be wearing Biden shirts and some will be wearing Trump shirts and we will get down on knees and we will worship the king of all eternity. And that we can count on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God with eternal, powerful, upending ways. Lord, would you make us a people who, who have an obsession with your ways? The ways you do things, the why you do things. Would you help us be a people who get fixated on your certain outcomes? that this day will happen. You've promised it. You've declared it. It will take place. We don't have to wonder if it will. It's going to happen. And Lord, with the way in which we speak to our neighbors, the way in which we vote, the way in which we speak about voting, the way in which we speak about our neighbors, would all of that be reflective of your immovability, your indestructibleness that you have invited us into. We your powerful people, because we are your people. Our power only comes from you. It's only about you. 
We are powerful because of who you are. Would we operate in these coming weeks and days in that power? Would we speak with that power? Not about political opinion, but in loving our neighbor and laying down even our preference for the sake of eternity. God, help us to move and operate differently as your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.